This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. On last week's episode, I talked to Ellen Powell about the rise of workplace harassment during the pandemic. We touched on how remote work has emboldened some abusers and what companies should do to address the problem. I recommend going back and listening to that episode after you finish this one. As we are all aware, sexual harassment at work is nothing new, nor is the litigation and activism pushing back against the pervasive cultures that enable this problem to persist. Fast Company staff editor Lydia Dishman took a closer look at the history of sexual harassment at work. The New York Times, in a piece called Women Begin to Speak Out Against Sexual Harassment, wrote, quote, For years, many women accepted it as a job hazard. Now, with raised consciousness and increased self-assurance, they are speaking out against the indignities of work-related sexual advances and intimidation, both verbal and physical, end quote. If you heard this and thought it was the opener for an article written in the last few years, you'd be wrong. It was actually published on August 19, 1975. What happened in the intervening years between that story the Me Too and Time's Up movements that gained traction in 2018, and the last year of remote work during COVID, is an evolution in attitudes about what constitutes appropriate behavior in the workplace. At times, it can feel like a one-step-forward, three-steps-back narrative, in part because virtual interactions that occurred over the past 19 months didn't prove to create a buffer from unwanted advances and inappropriate behavior and also because it took nearly 50 years for the voices of those who had to soldier on while being harassed to gain enough momentum to topple some of the high-powered abusers. While sexism and discrimination are as old as the human race, the very term sexual harassment was coined in the mid-70s by Lynn Farley, then director of the women's section of Cornell University's Human Affairs Program. She said to the Times, quote, I kept thinking, we've got to come up with a name, and the best I could come up with was sexual harassment of women on the job, end quote. At that time, Cornell did a small survey of 155 women attending a workshop and found that 70% of them said they'd been harassed on the job. And of the 50% who said they reported it, they found that nothing was done. At that time, there was no legal protection for the victims. Not long afterward, In 1977, Ms. Magazine published a cover story called Sexual Harassment on the Job and How to Stop It to further raise awareness and give women the tools they needed to speak out. However, it wasn't until 1979 when Catherine McKinnon, a Yale-educated attorney who had attended one of Lynn Farley's consciousness-raising events, published Sexual Harassment of Working Women that the U.S. judicial system began to see its way toward viewing sexual harassment as a form of discrimination. According to writer and attorney Anna Dorn, McKinnon shared draft copies of the book with attorneys litigating early sexual harassment cases. In 1980, Alexander v. Yale came to trial, in which the students at Yale alleged that their professors were propositioning them for sex in exchange for better grades. At that time, The Second Circuit recognized that under Title IX, schools must address sexual harassment as a form of sex discrimination. 
prompting the ACLU to declare the case a pivotal moment in Title IX history. In 1986, McKinnon herself litigated on behalf of the plaintiff in Meritor Savings Bank versus Vinson. Dorn writes, quote, in concluding that sexual harassment may violate sex discrimination laws, the U.S. Supreme Court held that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was not limited to economic or tangible discrimination. Rather, it found Congress's intent was to strike the entire spectrum of disparate treatment of men and women in employment, end quote. Flash forward five years to 1991. That's when Anita Hill testified about her boss, then Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas, who was also the head of the EEOC, the federal agency that fields claims of workplace sexual harassment. Because I was extremely uncomfortable talking about sex with him at all, and particularly in such a graphic way, I told him that I did not want to talk about these subjects. I would also try to change the subject to education matters or to non-sexual personal matters, such as his background or his beliefs. My efforts to change the subject were rarely successful. At his televised Senate confirmation hearing, Thomas denied Hill's story, and he was appointed to the Supreme Court anyway. However, Hill's decision to speak publicly spurred a rise in sexual harassment complaints filed with the EEOC, and women have been vocal against their harassers ever since. Still, many incidents go unreported, and there are large swaths of the workforce unprotected. Title VII applies only to companies that employ at least 15 people. Individual states must decide whether to pass laws to cover the workers Title VII leaves out. A previous report in Fast Company says that 19 states have lowered the threshold for coverage below the federal 15-employee minimum, and 17 others in Washington, D.C. have scrapped it altogether. Alabama and Louisiana set a higher benchmark for state statutes at 20 employees, and Maryland and North Carolina have idiosyncratic claim-filing structures. The remaining 10 either don't have statewide anti-discrimination laws at all or stick to Title VII 15-employee limit. In addition, some states have either mandated or officially encourage sexual harassment training, but predominantly for public sector employees only. In 2017, the world of work again was at an inflection point in the wake of Me Too and Time's Up. Standing up, speaking up, showing up to say, evolved into a year of reckoning for sexism with nearly every month punctuated by multiple allegations of sexual harassment and abuse of power across industries from tech to entertainment. The aftershocks took the form of raised awareness, companies scrambling to provide more training and more thoughtful approaches to inclusion in general. It's no surprise then that there has been a significant increase in the number of women and men reporting incidents 
However, their experiences and voices are the necessary through line at all points of this evolution, and they are being encouraged. Asmer Tatna, then president of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, put it, quote, the story has to be continued until there's no need for it anymore. Most recently, the pandemic sent many knowledge workers home and quarantines ensured that people stayed in relative safety. However, virtual meetings would prove just as fraught as conference rooms and other physical workspaces. A recent Project Include survey, which you heard about in last week's episode, revealed that over the past year, 25% of respondents experienced an uptick in gender-based harassment, particularly among those who identify as Black, Asian, Latinx, Indigenous, female, and non-binary. Another report from Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit The Purple Campaign nearly matched those findings, with one quarter of employees polled reporting an increase in gender-based harassment during the past year. There are myriad reasons for the continuance of inappropriate behavior. A recent Fast Company report indicated that experts observed that it's actually easier to harass others when no other coworkers are close by to overhear. Sitting behind a screen, using chat or direct messaging, often emboldens bad actors, too, especially as boundaries have blurred between work and home over the past 19 months and people are more casual and personal in conversation. Lest we forget, CNN's chief legal analyst and staff writer for The New Yorker, Jeffrey Tubin, masturbated while on a Zoom call with his colleagues. Broderick C. Dunn, a partner at Cook, Craig, and Frank Kujenko, told Fast Company, quote, people will say and type things that they would never say out loud and do if they were coming into a physical workspace. Unfortunately, he said, People still need to be reminded of the need to show the same restraint when working from home as they do in the office. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. If you like this episode, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. We want to hear from you. How has your job addressed workplace harassment since the pandemic moved most workplaces remote? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag New Way We Work. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen with editing from Nicholas Torres. 